Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Beth Farrell joins us now to discuss three recent cases that deal with an aspect of IP law not typically heard by the Federal Circuit, design patents. Beth, before exploring the three cases at hand, what do you attribute to the recent rise of design patent cases at the Federal Circuit? Well, I think it's important first that we quantify what we mean by rise. Between about 2009 and 2018, we typically had about three presidential Federal Circuit opinions that addressed some element of design law. In some years, like 2015, we had as many as four. In other years, like 2011, we only had one. So, so far in 2019, we've already had four decisions, and we had two more cases that have been argued and could be decided this year, and we have have another two cases that are already on deck for 2020. I would attribute this recent rise to a couple of things. First, I think that we have seen since Apple, Samsung, some uptick in the number of cases that are taken to court. But I think more importantly, we just have to look at the age of a lot of the design cases. Our leading cases involving obviousness law, for example, come from 1996 and 1982. The leading 112 cases come from 1983 and 1998. And of course, our main infringement case comes from 1871, which was modified by the Federal Circuit in 2008. So generally speaking, we have seen design case law move slowly. And so it is exciting to see that the Federal Circuit is weighing in on so many design-related issues. The first case we'll discuss is ABPA versus Ford, which deals with replacement parts. Give us a quick background on the case and how the court decided. So ABPA versus Ford is a case involving design patents owned by Ford that are directed to replacement parts. In particular, it's the hood and headlight for the popular Ford F-150 trucks. ABPA is the Automotive Body Parts Association, and it's an association of companies that distribute aftermarket automotive body parts. So these are the parts you go look for when you have unfortunately crashed your beloved F-150 and you're looking to repair it. ABPA actually filed a declaratory judgment action against Ford, asking the court to invalidate Ford's design patents as being dictated by function under the patentable subject matter statute for designs, which is 35 U.S.C. 171. And then on a second policy ground, ABPA asked the court to find Ford's design patents as unenforceable under the doctrines of exhaustion and repair. I'll address the exhaustion issue first. At the district court, the court found that Ford's rights in replacement parts were not exhausted upon the initial sale of the F-150 truck. What the court found and what the Federal Circuit agreed with was that exhaustion only applies to items that are sold by the patentee or with the patentee's authorization. Because ABPA's members were seeking to sell a new replacement part without Ford's authorization, in the Federal Circuit's mind, exhaustion did not occur. In other words, exhaustion applies on a particular item basis, and in this case, the headlamp that was sold with the truck originally was different from the replacement headlamp that was sold later on. ABPA asked the court to create a special rule for exhaustion with respect to designs, and the Federal Circuit declined to do that. Similarly, ABPA had a repair argument. 
under the doctrine of repair, a purchaser may replace certain individual unpatented components of a patented device without running afoul of the patent that covers the entire device. However, here, Ford had patents on both the entire truck design as well as the individual replacement parts. So what the Federal Circuit said was that it wasn't the situation where the purchaser was replacing an individual unpatented component. Rather, the purchaser was going to be replacing a patented component. In this case, either the protected hood or the protected headlamp. And what the Federal Circuit said was that this doctrine of repair does not allow the purchaser to infringe other patents in the process of repairing a larger patented device. Again, the court declined to adopt a special rule on the doctrine of repair as urged by the ABPA. And the other issue in the case? So the second issue in the case went to arguments regarding the validity of the patents in the first place as to whether they were patentable subject matter. The Federal Circuit started off by acknowledging that a design patent protects a design for an article of manufacture, and as a result, that underlying article must necessarily serve a utilitarian purpose. However, it's long been held that if a design is dictated by the article's function, then that design itself is invalid because Section 171 of Title 35 is intended to protect ornamental designs. In other words, if the design has nothing ornamental about it, then it's not design patentable subject matter. In this situation, the Federal Circuit highlighted some of the considerations that the courts use to assist in determining if a design is, quote, dictated by function, end quote. And the one that the Federal Circuit highlighted in this case was whether alternative designs exist that serve the same function. If that's the case, this increases the likelihood that the design serves a primarily ornamental purpose, not a functional one, and is therefore not invalid under Section 171 as functional. With this backdrop, what ABPA argued was that consumers seeking replacement parts prefer hoods and headlamps that restore the original appearance of their vehicle. As a result, ABPA argued that there is a functional benefit to designs that are aesthetically compatible with those vehicles. The Federal Circuit squarely rejected this argument. They went back and looked at what the Supreme Court had said, and they noted that the Supreme Court had said that a new and original appearance may enhance the value of an article, and that competitors are not authorized to use a protected design during the patent's life. The Federal Circuit found that to agree with ABPA and to hold that a design that derives commercial value from the aesthetic appeal as functional and thus not patent eligible would, and I quote, gut these principles. As a result, the Federal Circuit declined to take ABPA's invitation to borrow this concept of aesthetic functionality from trademark law. They said that although trademark law and design law in some ways are similar, it doesn't follow that trademark practices necessarily equally apply to design patents. It's important to remember that trademark and design laws serve different purposes and that the considerations that drive the application of the aesthetic functionality doctrine to trademark don't apply to the time-limited design patent rights. 
Another design patent case at the Federal Circuit was Curver Luxembourg versus Home Expressions. This was a motion to dismiss a district court decision dealing with a design patent for a chair. Tell us more. Well, I think if you were to look at this patent and you didn't read the title or the claim, it would be very difficult to tell that it is a patented design for a chair. In fact, the images only show a design for interlocking Y-shaped material. In fact, the original title of the application was Furniture Part Thereof, which sounds like an odd title, except that it's actually a title that is acceptable in other parts of the world. And so what I think happened here was that the applicant, who was originally not from the United States, used this title, and during prosecution, the examiner objected to the title as vague under U.S. rules. And the examiner actually offered up the design for a chair concept during prosecution, and the applicant agreed. The challenge here was that at the time that the application was filed, the MPEP actually stated that a title does not have a bearing on the scope of the design. However, in a separate section of the MPEP, it does state that the title and the claim must correspond. So when in agreeing to change the title to include this concept of the chair, the applicant also had to change the claim to include the concept of a chair. So the patent issues and Curver files a lawsuit against Home Expressions, and Home Expressions was making a basket that included this interlocking Y-shaped design. The district court granted Home Expressions' motion to dismiss on the grounds that no ordinary observer would purchase the defendant's basket with the Y design, believing that it was purchasing the Y design as applied to a chair. In the district court's opinion, it seemed clear that the district court noted that the Y design was substantially the same in the patent and in the accused product, but the decision here was based on the fact that the patent in the district court's eyes was limited to this design as applied to a chair. On appeal, the court had two holdings. The first was a case of first impression. The issue before the court was whether the claim language specifying an article of manufacture can limit the scope of a design patent, even if that article, in this case a chair, is not actually illustrated in the figures. And the court found that yes, claim language can limit the scope of a design patent where the claim language supplies the only instance of the article of manufacture. I think it's important to understand understand that this is a pretty limited holding because in most design applications, there is some indication of an article of manufacture in the figures. This is not completely supplied by the title. And I do take a bit of issue with this opinion because the court says, or at least implies, that there is no article of manufacture shown in the figures alone. I disagree with that. I think the figures show a three-dimensional material. Yes, that material isn't necessarily applied to a finished product that one might buy at the store, but I don't think that the article of manufacture is necessarily limited to a finished product. Nonetheless, in this case, because the claim language provided 
another perhaps narrower article of manufacture than what was shown in the figures, the Federal Circuit found that the claim language could limit the scope of the design patent. The second holding is a bit more familiar to patent practitioners, which is that the scope of the patent is limited by amendments. This is essentially a prosecution history estoppel argument. We've seen prosecution history estoppel crop up in a couple of design cases recently. It cropped up in the Pacific Marine case about the windshields, and it cropped up in the Avantech case case about the dog kennels. And so this just continues the Federal Circuit's line of cases, which essentially say, you know, if you agree to something during prosecution, you're going to be held to whatever that agreement was when it comes time to enforce your patent. What impact will this have on future prosecution of design patents? As I mentioned, up until a few years ago, the MPEP explicitly stated that title was not considered in determining the scope of the claim. While the Patent Office has moved away from this explicit statement and now says in the MPEP that the title may affect the scope of the claim, I think what we're seeing now is that we have Federal Circuit case law to back up that change to the MPEP. What this means for practitioners is you must be more careful with your selection of title. I think that you want to consider any suggestions on the part of the examiner about proposed changes to the title carefully. I don't think that the examiners are trying to create problems for applicants. I think they are genuinely trying to find a path forward to allowance, but it's just important that the applicants consider what effect that amendment will have on your future enforcement plans. And it may be difficult for applicants from other jurisdictions such as the European Union where title is not important at all to understand that because title and claim are tied together will have an effect on the scope of the claim. I think the second thing to remember is that when prosecuting design patents, it's really important to think about how you plan to use that design and how you plan to enforce that design. In some cases, it may be prudent to consider filing more than one design application because each design application only has one claim to adequately cover whatever your business objectives are. The final case we'll look at is Campbell versus Gammon, which is an appeal of an IPR involving obviousness. At issue is the design of soup can dispensers you'd see at the grocery store. Beth, what's the basis of this case? Well, those of you can't tell out in podcast land, but I'm not very tall, and I really like these soup dispensers because they roll out just one can of soup at a time, and you're not trying to reach really far back to grab that type of soup that you're looking for, and it keeps the soup cans nice and organized at the grocery store. In fact, this is a really popular dispenser. Gammon sold the design to Campbell's, and for quite a while, Campbell's had some increased sales of soup, ranging from 5 to 13%, depending on the flavor. And eventually, Campbell's decided to buy a competing design from another supplier. Gammon sued Campbell's in district court, and in response, Campbell's filed four IPRs against four of Gammon's design patents. The PTAB invalidated two of the designs under 103 Obviousness and did not invalidate two other designs under 103. Campbell's appealed the two final written decisions where the claims survived. The issue before the Federal Circuit was whether the two patents were each obvious over two proposed primary references, the Linz reference and the Samway reference. With respect to one of the patents, the PTAB had found that Lintz could not be a proper primary reference 
because in the PTAB's view, the Lintz reference was not basically the same as the claim design. In this case, the Federal Circuit did something quite unusual. They actually vacated that holding, which was a factual finding. The Federal Circuit credited the testimony of a designer of ordinary skill, finding that the designer would have understood that Lintz was designed to hold cylindrical objects like soup cans. And as a result, they disagreed with the board's finding that Lintz did not have basically the same overall visual impression as the claim design. They acknowledged that the board found some differences, but the court characterized those as ever so slight differences and not enough to make Lintz not a proper primary reference. On the other hand, the PTAB had found that Samways was not a proper primary reference, and in this case, the Federal Circuit affirmed that holding, finding that the board's decision was supported by substantial evidence. In dissent, Judge Newman wrote that she thought that a reference should not be modified before it is compared to the claim design to determine if it's an appropriate primary reference. This is sometimes called the inexistence requirement, and in Judge Newman's view, the Lintz reference had to be modified in order for it to be basically the same as the claim design, and Judge Newman didn't think that that was appropriate. And finally, Beth, what impact will this case have on IPR petitions moving forward? I think that the Campbell's case provides some very helpful guidance with respect to obviousness law. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we don't necessarily have a wealth of cases in most areas of design. And this is a nice case because it shows a reference that is a proper primary reference on one end of the scale and a reference that is not a proper primary reference on the other end. And I think that having such a clear example will be useful to practitioners in the future when making obviousness arguments. I think this also illustrates situations in which the board will be given deference to certain factual findings and in situations where it will not be given deference. As a result, we would continue to see the board provide detailed reasoning to support its findings in the future. Our guest has been Beth Farrell, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.